0: Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Our guest today is Carmen Alexei. We talk about her courageous escape from Romania during the Cold War, what it was like to live in a communist state, and her take on the rise of socialism in America and why she thinks that's an extremely bad idea. She has a great website called solitarygal.com where she explains how you too can find more freedom in an increasingly unfree world. I exercise my health freedom by taking Kratom. I've been in chronic pain for over 30 years and I wanted to find an alternative to the traditional pain management system. For me, Kratom works. I advise anybody considering taking Kratom to do their own research. The only Kratom I trust comes from Urban Ice Organics, you can find it at naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics with organic spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X dot Use the promo code chronicallyhuman20 to get 20% off your next order. I really enjoyed my conversation with Carmen. She's optimistic, full of life, and all about finding positive solutions that individuals can implement to finding more freedom in an increasingly unfree world. Thanks for joining us today, and let us know your thoughts about freedom in America. Thank you, Carmen, for being on the show
1: today. It's a pleasure, Brad. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I found your work on fee.org. You know, I read your articles that you had written, and from that, I found your blog, Solitary Girl, and I really enjoyed that. And. I think it's important to tell your story because you have lived under a communist system, which in reality it was called the Socialist Republic of Romania until 1989. And people get a lot of times confused about communism, socialism, democratic socialism, and all those terms. So we wanted to have you on today to really talk about what you've seen, where you grew up, and what you see today in America. And before we get jump into that, I wanted to ask you, what is an Eleutheromaniac? I saw that as something, that's a term I've never <laughs> seen before. So I wanted to, to clear that up before we get started.
1: Yeah, it's actually someone that is absolutely in love with freedom and cannot get freedom out of his mind or her mind. So I found it myself as I was working on my blog and I thought, Wow, this is a very interesting term, and I thought I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there because I'm so passionate about freedom, individual freedom, uh, like you and like a lot of other people, so I thought I'll just, you know, make people, you know, my audience, my little audience on my blog, just like, let them be aware of this new term.
0: Yeah, I think it's great. I wasn't aware of myself, so I'm glad you brought that to us because I do think that, um, <clears throat> I think you wrote as well that freedom is really ingrained in your soul, that you have it's almost like a a spiritual connection or there's some kind of almost like a biological drawing to the ideas of freedom. Do you think that there is something innate in, innate in certain people that draws them to the ideas of freedom? Or do you think it's more environmental where people are drawn to the ideas of living a free life?
1: Uh, wow, what a question, very good question. Um, it might be both, okay? Um, and I say both because, first of all, definitely environmental is absolutely imperative. It's, it's uh, the environment has a lot to do with how we perceive freedom, how you know, we look at it. And if we even take the time to think about it, um, I grew up in, in, in a totalitarian system. So I grew up in a system where there was no freedom whatsoever. The government controlled everything. They controlled the people. They controlled the economy. We didn't have much freedom. We didn't have freedom to travel. We didn't have freedom to express ourselves. We didn't have options. We didn't have other choices. We were taught, at least they were trying to make us, you know, uh, think certain ways that the government is there to protect us and to save us. And uh, so therefore, um, um, you know, obviously it is environmental, but I have to say that uh, we you know i grew up in a in a in a in a in a city that was very close to the border with a formerly known yugoslavia and uh, through yugoslavia through hungary even though hungary at that time was still communist but it was less communist less authoritarian than romania and the rest of the other eastern countries um, there was a spread of ideas underground ideas were coming our way. So with my city being located so close to the border, obviously the ideas and of course the black market was the first to, to be stationed in that area. So in my city. Uh, secondly, I was a swimmer and uh, up until I escaped Romania, I traveled in a lot of countries. And the way that I grew up, I was forced to and I wasn't the only one, I was forced to mature very early. So I was not really thinking like a typical teenager. I was thinking much more maturely. And then I established connection with friends from what it used to be Western Germany. I established connection with friends from from Greece. All these countries used to be free, you know, from the Western world. And I, you know, traveling over there and talking to these friends, I saw a difference between their lives and our lives. I saw their freedoms. I noticed their freedoms. I noticed my freedom, which I didn't have much. So as a result of that, I really think that definitely environmental is, is, is number one. Is it something innate? Maybe so too. Uh, I think that people are different and I cannot say that all Romanians, even all Romanians who might have escaped Romania at the same time or during that time when I escaped would feel the same way about freedom that I do. Even though I got quite a few people from Romania who wrote to me on my blog and they they send me emails and they say, oh, Carmen, I couldn't agree with you more. We love freedom and so on and so forth. But I cannot speak for everybody.
0: I got you. That makes a lot of sense because everybody is so different that you just can't... Um We really don't know what's going on inside anybody else's head, to be honest with you. But I do think that there's certain people who are drawn to the ideas of freedom. And for me, I searched it out. My brother, he brought me uh, from college. He read Atlas Shrugged. He had a professor who gave him extra credit for reading Atlas Shrugged. And so he brought home a book that was about that thick, and he's like, "Dude, you got to read this." And so that was kind of my entrance into the world of freedom. And we'd lived in, you know, we were born and raised in the United States. Um, so I can't imagine coming from somewhere else where those ideas are basically um, really forbidden to to make that journey from there to here and to now advocate for the ideas of freedom. So I think that's awesome. Now, how long did you, what, what time frame did you live in Romania? And what was it like there during the time that you did live? Because I know that there are food shortages and power outages and just a lot of things we take for granted here that in uh, that socialist system were really falling apart.
1: Yeah, I uh, I actually lived in Romania until uh, 1982. So I was 18 at the time when I, I escaped Romania. So uh, as I said, I was pretty mature at that point. I, I realized what I'm doing. And I realized a couple of years prior to what my intent was and how I really didn't want to live my life, you know, in such a system because I didn't see a future for myself. I felt like I was in a, in a in a cell, in a, in a, you know, in a prison, you know, uh, even though I had a little bit more freedom than other people, because obviously as being a competitive swimmer, I was able to travel outside of the borders and especially in Western countries, which for the most of the Romanians, um, uh, they couldn't do it. You can just get a passport and just like say, I would like to go and travel and, you know, see United States or visit Canada or anything like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, um, one of those things that I was able to, I, I want to say I was a little bit more privileged than others. So I was 18 when I left. So, but, um, back during the seventies and especially like during the late seventies, uh, things had started to deteriorate, uh, and early eighties, right before I left, uh, things have gone pretty bad. I have heard from other people and including my family who was left behind. I have heard the things that after I left, like 83, 84, 85, they got even worse. I mean, everything became became very scarce. But I do remember early 80s when they came, people from the government, um, I guess bureaucrats from the government, they came to our apartment and what they did um, they wrote down information, how many, they did like a census to see how many people in the family and based through that census, they started to ration everything that became scarce, uh, on the market. So items such as milk, eggs, cheese, m- well, meat wasn't even rationed because there wasn't much meat left anymore. So we were eating, uh, brains you know, and livers, (laughs) and stuff like that. And, uh, but other items, you know, eggs and, and dairy products and stuff like that, and sugar, sugar, flour, all these items were rationed. Okay, so we were only allowed to a certain, like, say, for example, my family of four was allowed to have one kilogram of sugar per month okay but that is if we were lucky enough to stay in line early enough in the morning and be able to get it because you could be entitled to the ration of so much per month but if you don't wake up in the morning at you know like my mom used to wake up often at two o'clock in the morning so she could stay in line Uh, for when the store was opening at seven o'clock in the morning, so that we, she would be able to get home some yogurt and some butter and other dairy products and eggs and stuff like that. So really all these things, uh, which we take for granted here, we, you know, we had to struggle for those. So pretty much everything was rationed as far as other products like, you know, perfumes and clothing, um, The the government was not really producing much. Whatever they were producing, everything was exported to the West, okay? Either that, well, everything. Uh, The the large percentage, the majority of it was exported, and then the small percentage of it was left for, you know, there's always those people in power, whether you are in a so-called democratic system, or if you are in a you know in a socialist system there's those people out there in power and they're not going to go through the rationing that the masses are going through so a lot of those good products would stay for them um as far as as far as black market that was very predominant so we had friends who were selling blue jeans and on perfumes and all kinds of things on the black market these are the these were the entrepreneurs <laughs> and the
0: that spirit, it, it can't be extinguished, right? No. no matter in the in the totalitarian system under Ceausescu, you know, tried to control everything. But in the end, you know, it's only the eyes and hands of the others who are who are the ones who are the security, who are the ones that have to throw people in jail, and who are the ones that have to ration this food out. So there are, um, there's a lot of cracks in the system where entrepreneurs can, not a lot, but uh, there is uh, an opportunity for the black market.
1: I agree. And, and I mean, we see things here in the United States because this is human nature. I mean, if something is officially trying to be taken away from us, we will find ways. People will find ways to get it. Okay. Whether it's good for them or not, look Mm -hmm. at the drug you know, environment. You know, not that I'm advocating. You know, necessarily. You know, taking marijuana and being on drugs. I'm not advocating that. But there is an, an amazing, a, a tremendous underground market, a black market for the drugs, especially in the areas in the states where drugs are illegal.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think you had a good point about that. In any system, you're going to have the people that are enforcing that system. They're going to be. Uh, not rationed. They're not going to be under the same controls, the same laws that everybody else is. And we're seeing that here in the United States play out too as well, that politicians aren't held to the same standards, that they're people who are able to to um, take advantage of the system by using the law to what Frederick Bastier called plunder, legal plunder, right? You're able to use the law to force people to hand over your money and uh, limit your choice in order to profit Uh, On that on that front. Now, as far as the, the drugs go, I personally am for legalization of all drugs. I think black market prohibition never works and it causes like all these other horrible, horrible consequences. Now, with the black market in Romania, was it mostly drugs or was it mostly just regular items that we can just go out and buy today?
1: No I mean as far as I know to be honest drugs was not even an item that was you know drugs or or guns it's not something that people were interested in people were interested in food they were interested in perfumes in they were inter- interested in clothing fashion they were interested in ideas they were not really interested in you know fighting the government getting guns I don't recall Anybody or knowing, and maybe it was, but I don't know anybody who was on drugs, even marijuana. There was not anything like that that I know of. Coffee was another item. I mean, just regular coffee was an item that was found on the black market. Good coffee from other countries. So we loved coffee. I mean, Romanians love their coffee. And when you when you have just like really poor coffee on the market or none at all, then of course you're going to go and, and pay a premium to find some good quality coffee. Yeah, so definitely. yeah, I don't know, drugs, I don't know of Brad, um, drugs or guns or anything like that. Gotcha. But also too, I'm, I'm like you, I'm I'm for legalizing, okay? Legalizing everything. Not that I would take it. I think people should make their own choices, okay? People should make their own choices. If they make bad choices, they will suffer the consequences because I think this is the law of the universe in a sense.
0: I do too. I do think that like you talk about human nature, you talk about supply and demand. And I think that prohibition is one of those innate laws that if you do take away uh, something that people want, they're going to find a way to get that. And in order to suppress it, you're going to have to do horrible things like lock up millions and millions of people, spend over a trillion dollar of taxpayer money, and still have more drugs available now at a cheaper price than has ever occurred in the history of the country.
1: Well excellent point. And if we are to talk about that too, look at the healthcare. Let me let me just say a little bit about healthcare in Romania. So healthcare in Romania was socialized. National healthcare. care. There was no private anything. So all the physicians, everything was government provided. Doctors also, I mean, people would go, you know, to school, they would do go through and make sacrifices to go to medical school and they'd become doctors. But their salaries, I mean, they were a little bit above what the standard was, but they were not like really compensating properly, compensated properly. But Going back to the supply and demand, there was, you know, shortages. There were shortages of doctors, shortages of, 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 of medication, medicine. There was, um, uh, uh, there was a lot of demand because people would get sick everywhere and they needed care. And uh, okay. So if you don't have access to a doctor tomorrow or today or even next week, what would people have to do to get access to that? They would have to pay the doctor a premium and say, listen, I'll pay you this kind, this, you know, and usually it was either in money was not really an issue because, you know, But, like, say, for example, items of value, like uh, commodities, like, say, for example, whiskey Mm -hmm. or cigarettes, those were very much in demand. So they would definitely take them. Doctors would take them even if they didn't smoke because they would be able to sell them on the black market, guess what, for a good amount of money. So if I were to bring, you know, a carton of canned cigarettes to the doctor so that he could see me you know, in a short amount of time because I have a need for that. Obviously, I'm bribing the doctor, but, you know, that's the system. So having said that, my daughter, I remember she used to be in medical school, and I was telling her about these stories, and she's like, Oh, Mom, no, 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 no. There's no way anything like this could happen in America. Well, it took a few years, and she's now a neurologist. She's a doctor herself. She sees what's going on in the healthcare system, and she said to me, "She says, Mom, if we go national, <laughs> I think you're right. I think people will have to because there will be there are no there will be no balance between that supply and demand. There's not enough physicians out there that are are going to be able to to meet the demand of such a growing and you know, sick population. Mm -hmm. So eventually in a national healthcare system, that's what people would probably have to resort to.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, Just to give you a little bit of background on myself, as far as healthcare goes, uh, when I've been sick for like chronically ill and in chronic pain for 30 years. Uh, At age 11, I was diagnosed with a severe case of ulcerative colitis. And at age 12, I had my entire colon removed. And from then, I've had 20 surgeries, 50 hospital stays and hundreds of doctors visits. So I've seen healthcare from the patient uh-huh. side and I've seen that the the increasing intervention of government and how destructive that is between the doctor patient relationship and how devastating that is especially to people who are in pain right now because I think with the the opioid so-called opioid crisis what's going on is that there's millions of people who are either undertreated or not being treated at all because doctors are afraid of the government. And I think nobody would have ever thought that would happen, but I've seen the the intrusion of the DEA slowly take over and doctors, you know, they would warn me, we can't do this anymore, Brad. You know, even though your pain's still there, you know, we're afraid of being in trouble. And now we've seen that um, really blossom across the country. And there's a huge advocacy right now with people in pain that are trying to get these laws changed, but it wasn't even a law that was passed. It was the CDC guidelines um, for what doctors um, could prescribe, or it was like more like guidance. It wasn't even a law or even a recommendation. It was just called guidance. And that was taken as law because doctors are beholden with their <clears throat> state license and their DEA license to the government. So I definitely see health rationing and health care shortages you know coming to the future here in America and unfortunately the more that they're involved in everything else we can go down the road more like Romania even though the people called it a communist system in reality it was more of a socialist system do you think that's part of the problem that we have today that that there's such a confusion of uh, definitions about words that are thrown around especially like the mainstream media about democratic socialism uh, about progressivism about conservatism, about fascism, and all of these isms, in reality, I think it boils down to individualism versus collectivism, and the idea that you have inherent rights or you don't. What are your thoughts on how people are describing the systems that they want us to live under, and uh, which one do you fall under, or which one would you choose to live under? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I choose to live under none, except for the one where we were—we actually kind of take care of ourselves and we eliminate all this ism. Um, I think, to, to be honest, from everything that I read and I, I assessed and I—I I, I experienced myself, socialism, democratic socialism, communism, fascism involved a very strong powerful government that means authority that means a group of whether it's hundreds of people or thousands of people that call themselves government with a backing of large corporation against each one of us individually so uh they are supposed to control our lives and tell us what is good for us or not But these are all people themselves. Do you really think they they don't even know you? They don't know who I am. They don't know who their constituents are, even if they may have seen them and chatted with them like, you know, a few minutes or hours. But they have their own lives. They have their own families. They have their own troubles. And, you know, they're going to do what's best for themselves. They really don't care about the rest of the people who are called you know, the population or the citizenry or anything like that. So all this, you know, democratic socialism, you know, I think the difference is just in mentality. It gives people the impression that they have some sort of a control over the government. But in reality, it's not, because even if that's the case, You take the 51% of people who think one way and with one socialism versus the 49% of people who really want to be left alone. And guess what? How democratic, how fair is that? Okay, it could be democratically known, you know, in rhetoric, but is that fair to the 49% who actually want to be free and left alone? So no, you're right. You i'm it's all about collectivism versus versus individualism. I think individuals uh are very important uh and to me collectivism is just something that you know i guess the the the, the government the universities everybody that endorses the the progressive uh uh group. They all came up with this to make people feel like, um, you know, this is the right thing to do. You know, it's moral. It's ethical to be part of the collective. okay. And then supposedly you're supposed to forget about yourself. okay. So that means that you are not selfish and you take care of the group. And, you know, God knows. But no, I mean, I'm I'm with you. It's individualism versus uh, collectivism. This is the battle that. At least for the last few decades, it's been going on, maybe even more so than than a few decades.
0: Yep, I would agree. Ayn Ayn Rand, she wrote, um, it's called The Textbook of Americanism, and it's a short work by her. I think it's unfinished, but she talks about the ideas that a society can be based upon either individualism or collectivism and the one if it's under individualism it means that people have inherent rights that can't be taken away from the majority like you just talked about if 49 percent want to be left alone then they have the the right to do so but under collectivism your mind your body the production of your labor actually belongs to the group and that group is never really defined it's either the collective or the majority or the Politburo, or it's the the top Nazi brass, or it's the Ceausescu and his family, because that was a really, I think Romania was a little bit different than some of the other communist countries. In, in fact, it was more of a cult of personality for about 20 years. And it was, it was I know people talk about it was a, more like a dictatorship or a, <clears throat> you know, less authoritarian or more authoritarian, but in the end, you had that elite at the top governing everybody else. Now, how did you actually leave Romania? I know you said that you were a swimmer. I mean, did you swim to America or, or how did you make it here?
1: <laughs> no, I did not swim in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, I <laughs> No, but uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a good story. Uh, it's lengthy. I'm going to shorten it quickly. I was a competitive swimmer and um, when I turned 18, um, I knew that would be whatever the first Uh, trip, the first uh, um, uh, competition I would go to, uh, I wanted to make that move. So after I turned 18, um, I went to... uh, We had a competition in what is formerly known as Yugoslavia. Um, And I had that competition. And prior to my departure, I actually... Planned my escape. So Yugoslavia was a neutral country at the time. So they really didn't belong to the to NATO. Neither did they belong to the Warsaw Pact, the Eastern Bloc. So um, they were somewhat free in a sense, you know, but not as free as you know as the rest of the Western world. So, um, but a lot of people like me have escaped through Yugoslavia. I was somewhat uh, um, <clears throat> fortunate because I did not have to cross the border from Romania into Yugoslavia, where I sort of, say for example, my brother-in-law, he actually had to cross the border, and I mean, he could have been shot, and a lot of people have been shot on the border. Uh, also, a lot of people have tried to cross the Danube River. And they died in the Danube River because that's a big river. And, you know, I mean, currents and stuff like that. And some of them ended up on the Romanian territory again. So they would be taken in prison. So anyway, I was lucky because I went to a competition legally. So I traveled with a collective passport. I didn't have my own passport. So I traveled with a collective passport. I went to the competition. I performed. And then after that, I made my escape. So it took like several attempts because I got caught several times, two times. I was in jail for about five days. <laughs> yes. Like pajamas, striped pajamas. Yes. And um, <clears throat> so I was there and um, they put me in a, in a cell. And I think this is during the time. The first time I got caught, actually, they put me back on the train and they say, you go back. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. I thought, this is a young girl. I mean, what does she know? We don't want to have responsibility over her. Plus, they caught me on the other side of the country, hmm. meaning I was very close. They caught me on the border with Italy, okay? Because that was you know, what I was trying to do. I took the train from where I had the competition, so I traveled about eight hours or so at night with the train, and then over there I got off, and I was actually trying to, by foot, to escape and cross the border into Italy. Well, the first time I got caught. So because I was so close to Italy, they figure they didn't want to spend all these resources and, you know, just take me over and hand me over to the Romanian authority all the ways on the other side of the country. So they just put me on the train and said go, just go. So I came back, I got off the train and I did come back. <laughs> How did you feel then, when
0: how did you feel when you were sent back Carmen like were you very disappointed or were you determined to to make another try
1: I was very scared I mean I'll be very honest I was very fearful I was scared I was alone I initially planned it with another friend of mine but she got caught before and uh they they realized that she was going to to cross the border and so they didn't let her come um so it made it for me much harder um, I was very scared, but I, I was even more scared to to go back to Romania because I knew the stories of what could potentially happen, not only to myself, but to my family, had I been, you know, back in Romania at that time. So I, I was determined to just come back at whatever cost. And I got off the train. I had like some ser- serious, you know, anxiety moments. I started even crying, you know, because I... I you know, I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I was so fear uh, in fear. So, but then I, you know, I calmed myself down and I came back. But my, I guess my own luck, they caught caught me again. I got caught again. And what do you think? It's the same agents, police people, the same guys that caught me the first time that caught me the second time. I just couldn't believe it. So they asked me, they said, they said, if, If we put you back on the train, are you going to come back again? And I said, yes. (laughs) And I said, oh, goodness. Why do you want? I said, I want to go to America. And then they're like, (laughs) and they started to laugh. Because to them, you know, Yugoslavia was so far away from America. It's an ocean away. I mean, we're already in the eastern part of Europe. Just arriving in America, it was like a fantasy. It's like, really, this is a concept they couldn't get. So but I had a dream I think maybe too because I was very young I had a dream. And uh and uh so then they put me in a jail uh, uh for 5 days and I stayed 5 days without knowing what would happen to me and that was were probably some of the worst you know moments in my life because I I did not know whether they were going to put me on a plane and send me to Romania or if they were going to let me allow me to cross the border uh, into Italy. So until the last day, I was on pins and needles because I did not know what was going to happen. So but I try to, you know, make good use of the time. So, you know, I was doing the chores that other inmates were doing and I made connections and I just kind of blended in with everybody else, with all the other females So then the fifth day, they called me and um, they told me, they said, well, we're going to, you know, we checked you out. You're, they checked me out because they thought, okay, they want to make sure I'm not like wanted by the uh, Romanian government for, I'm not no criminal or anything like that. So um, they said, we're going to let you travel across the border into Italy, but you have to promise that you do not say anything about this. And they knew that, you know, their position was, you know, Yugoslavia couldn't officially be known as allowing people to go and cross the border freely into Italy, Italy at that time. So I told them, yes, but, you know, when I got to Italy and I had my interview with the American uh, consulate and you know the rest of for, politi- uh, for political asylum, I couldn't lie. I figured you know, there's, there's no way I, I want to lie about this. I, I didn't want to you know put those people in jeopardy, but I had no choice. So I did t- tell the truth. Um, so then they, they just put me on they took me over uh, and they, they, we, it was like very foresty area and they, they said, "You see those lights over there?" And I said yeah and they said this is Trieste, which is a city. Trieste is a city in Italy. And said this is the path. We have to wait here until it's it's dark and then you can go ahead on your way. So that's what we did. We waited in the car and we talked a little bit. I, I was lucky because I spoke English and a lot of people spoke English uh, over there, too. So we communicated in English. I didn't speak their Serbian language and neither did they speak Romanian. But English was a good language to know. So that's how I got over there. And I traveled. I mean, I lost the path first to one of those stories, you know, where it's like you're so exuberant and so happy. It's like, oh my gosh, where am I now? So <laughs> I had to kinda look for those lights. So finally I got into Trieste. It was past ten o'clock in the at night. And then I um I had to look for the first police station, which I had found the police first police station, and that's where I actually asked for political asylum. And from there, you know, they just kinda did all my processing. They put me in a nightly asylum for um people that uh um, <clears throat> you know, uh, people that, uh, you know, have mental disabilities and h- homeless people. So I was there for 24 hours until the next day, I ate with them. And, you know, I, I, I slept over there. And then the next day, they put me on a on a train. And, um and they they took, you know, they allowed me to go to you know, to the refugee camp, which was in a city uh, outside of Rome, which was called Latina. And that's where the refugee camp was. And that's where I, you know, I stayed in Italy for about seven months. I was granted political asylum. Um, I was asked, uh, why am I leaving? And I, I, you know, I, I said, because I want freedom. And, uh, and, uh, so I, I passed, I guess what their test was, and then I had to go through like a physical test as well. And, uh, so yeah, so that's the story. Then they put me seven months later they put me on a plane and I came over to the United States.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, that's, that's an incredible journey. And I think it's important to, to talk about this because a lot of kids nowadays, especially anybody who's, um, in their twenties don't even realize what what the cold war was all about and about the massive human suffering that actually occurred and what it took for people to escape that world now do you think that were you always an optimistic dreamer when you when you were young and do you think that had a lot to do with just being in contact with these um with these other countries and seeing how other people you know live their life
1: um I think both Brad I really think both I was pretty optimistic I think when you're very young you're very optimistic you don't want to accept the the things the way they are even if they make you unhappy or you don't see light of the end of the tunnel so you're young you're healthy you have a good you know a good brain Uh, in the head, you know, you look forward to something in the future. So you don't accept status quo, you don't accept your life the way it is. So optimism is definitely, I guess, part of being a young person. But also too, I think, you know, I mean, um, uh, the, you know, the fact that I grew up in a system where there was, you know, there wasn't any freedom, I really wanted, I mean, I really wanted to live my life and call my own shots. So I, I didn't want anybody to. I was very stubborn. I didn't want anybody to dictate, you know, how to live my life, or tell me or program, you know, how I should live my life.
0: Now, as far as when you were in Romania, what was the, um, what was it like to live in that system? What was it like to, to be, to have your options really limited? Was there optimism in the general population, or were people just concerned about just getting by? with uh, getting enough food to to eat and about obtaining medical treatment if they needed it and just about about basic survival instead of trying to think about how they could thrive and improve their life.
1: Well, first of all, we didn't even have internet at that time. Mm -hmm. So, um, except for the areas where the ideas, you know, were spread, and usually the ideas were spread in the communities of young people like me at the time. But like you said, the rest of the population, there was somewhat of a pessimism and kind of like, I want to live my life day to day. I don't care about next year. I don't care about 10 years down the road. I just want to get by. I want to put food on my table. I want to have uh, a roof above uh, my head. I want to try to go and you know entertain myself if I can a little bit. But um, other than that, there was no really optimism. Um, I think the idea of, you know, speaking with Romanian people, at least from what I could tell, and that's why I decided I I would, I wanted to leave Romania too, because um, most of the um, Romanian population did not think that Ceausescu's government is ever going to go away. Wow. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I, I have a belief that, you know, and, and I spoke with two people that I know from Venezuela who actually live here right now. That is pretty much a same, you know, the same with a lot of people who live in Venezuela. They, they're not really thinking, they're not very optimistic not a lot of optimism. They, they think that the, you know, The government is there to stay. So they live from day to day, you know, I mean, they they just get by and trying to put what's really important to survival, like food and water and clean water if you can. So, yeah, that was the, the, you know, a lot of people here. I'm just I'm very surprised and unpleasantly surprised to see how many people and people who are, you know, educated, you know, they they give this, they put this socialism, you know, on a pedestal, idea on a pedestal, uh, which to me, it looks like they're actually, what they're doing, they're just relinquishing, giving up the responsibility of taking care of themselves. And uh, asking the government to take care of them, because this is, you know, the right thing to do, and the government will provide for everybody. And the government is going to do the right thing for the entire nation. So anyway, I diverted a little bit from from that from your question. But yeah, there was a lot of pessimism. And if you go in rural areas, Brad, oh, my gosh, (laughs) those people there, I mean, over there, you even lacked education, people who didn't even know, unfortunately, how to speak, how to write, how to you know, they were very illiterate. Mm-hmm. And, and, very illiterate. So. And also in mm-hmm.
0: Romania, they they changed yeah. the history books as well. They uh, they purposely, um, you know, skewed history to support the regime. And you talk about entertainment, but there was how much entertainment was there actually there uh, that you could spend your time like today? We have hundreds of TVs, TV channels. We've got the internet. We've got everything. But back then in Romania, what was it like to try to entertain yourself if you did have free time?
1: Well, um, I could tell you what we were doing. Uh, We were having parties like uh, the youth. We would have parties and we would just, you know, talk and have a good time and dance. I'm, I'm very much into music and dancing and chat a lot you know just exchange ideas and a lot of the people who were in my group they had the same they frame of mind you know very optimistic very anti establishment anti government um actually some of those were black marketers though so some of those guys so yeah so that was one entertainment. Then we had what is called discotheques. <laughs> so we would go and dance, you know. Um we we I again I love dancing, so ever since I was a little girl, so we would do that. Um television, we had one channel first, then we had improved. We had two channels. That's a hundred percent increase. So that's doing good. Yeah. There you go. Yes, and uh, so those two channels, um, entertainment was watching. Uh, what was it, Dallas Ewing Company? What was the name of that show? Yeah, was that Dallas, was fun. Yeah. Dallas, yeah, yes. Dallas, Dallas. Yeah. So that was fun. Um, th- that was entertainment. Um, so older people, I well, my family say, say for example, my parents, they loved to play. You know, at the, you know, other friends of theirs, they would come to their house, to our house, our house, our apartment. And uh, they would play some sort of cards, uh, maybe poker. You know, I grew up playing dominoes, love dominoes and canaster and stuff like that. Um, So, yeah, this is pretty much entertainment. Uh, Of course, this is not the same entertainment that some of the people up there in the government would would do. You know, they had actually discotheques, like at the Black Sea, they had discotheques where only foreigners were able to get in because you only could get in with either US dollars or German marks, you know, or some sort of what it used to be known as hard currency, which is not hard currency, but anyway, Western currency. So, but Romanians, they were not allowed to get in. Well, I found myself, you know, I found ways to get in. So I had friends, you know, who would let me in. So um, I was able to get in. But, you know, yeah, um, you you couldn't get into. And those were much more sophisticated and much nicer than general, typical discotheques, dancing places for us. But, yeah, that's typical entertainment, what we had. I mean, vacation. Yeah, my family would, would go to the Black Sea and we would go to the Black Sea um, it was um It was nice to just be out there in the sun and by the water. Um, I really enjoyed that growing up, mm-hmm. so I guess I you know yeah, that was part of what a lot of people would do too
0: and it, and it 's the same thing with the human spirit that people want to gather together we 're all we are social animals, and I know your blog is called Solitary Girl, which I love the title of it, but a lot of people when they hear us talk about individualism. Um, I think a lot of people will think that we want to be hermits, that we want to not be uh, active participants in the community. We don't want to be around other humans. Are you a hermit?
1: Absolutely not. My goodness, Brad. I mean, um, I I love being around people. I really do. I mean, I would definitely not want to be on an island by myself. I would not be able to live on an island by myself. Um, I... um, I, you know, I socialize a lot as much as I can, but I also think there is a time when I really need my time, my just personal time. And I think this is healthy, at least for me it is, because when I get engaged with, especially a lot of other people, like a group of people, it drains some of my resources. So my batteries are getting discharged. So in order for me to be able to charge back my batteries, I need to have my own time. Plus you know, a lot of ideas. Let's just say you and I are talking right now. You're talking about certain things, you know, certain things I know, certain things I'm not, I don't know. But guess what? When I'm on my own time, I reflect upon that. And I'm curious enough to want to learn more about it. I'm going to go ahead and research it. So no, definitely. I am not a loner. I love people. I love to be in, in a group of people but definitely I'm I you know I need my very own time and I think you probably do too
0: I do as well yeah that I I I kind of set you up there I know you're not a hermit but I think that's a big knock on libertarianism <laughs> and uh the old concept of rugged individualism really was uh, vilified for the last 40 years the idea that Individuals, it was really the idea that it was a dog-eat-dog world, that if we truly had individual freedom in this country, that everybody would be pursuing their self-interest at the cost of others. And I think that's, that's a really dangerous idea because the freedom that we're talking about is voluntary cooperation in which two parties, when they do transact, that both parties do benefit from that. Now, in a socialist system, it's more of a top-down type of system, and it's based on coercion. What kind of um, government coercion did you guys suffer under directly, or do you, does your family have any stories of running afoul of the government when they were trying to to accomplish something?
1: Well, um, I could tell you after I left, there have been some repercussions that my family uh, had to unfortunately experience. Um, both my parents' jobs, my, my dad was in military and he was forced into retirement, early retirement. Um, at least thank God that he was established enough among his own people that he, cause he got retired before the age, you know, regular age, um, discharged from the military. And, uh, technically he could have had no pension or anything like that. But luckily, he was able to maneuver away, you know, through his you know, contacts where he did get a pension and he was able to live until his death. Uh, my mom had to change jobs. I mean, really had to change jobs. She, she could not work at the place. She also worked in the uh, well for the military and she was an accountant there and she had to really <clears throat> she 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 was let go. Um, then my, my sister had repercussions uh, when she was in college as well, after I left all because I was a traitor, considered a traitor. And because my family, uh, was, you know, was known, at least that's what the government said, the establishment said that they, you didn't know how to raise your child, uh, in the spirit of communism and socialism and collectivism. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing too, um, in Romania, um, and gosh, I am starting to see this very predominantly here, capitalism was so stomped on. I mean, it was put down like the evil of humanity.
0: Right.
1: I mean, evil, evil. The What's the worst that could happen to a, 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 a people? It's ca- capitalism. And we need socialism and socialism and communism. Are going to save you know humanity from its own destruction. So we actually, this type of propaganda was very much ingrained in us. Um, a lot of people, you know, in school. I mean, we were taught, you know, uh, that you know, uh, um, socialism is the right way to go, and capitalism is, is the is the wrong way to go. Um, trying to think of other things too. Um, what could, what had happened. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of things. Um, um, now, did, but you, yeah.
0: did your parents, did they, um, did they blame you for going? Was there any animosity or were they happy for you that you were able to leave? And did you talk to them before you made your plans?
1: I did and I couldn't. And, and that's not because they didn't want the best for me, because they both wanted the best for me. But they both could not conceive the idea that I am embarking on a an adventure on a journey that you know you don't know how things are going to turn out and I didn't know I mean I didn't have a crystal ball to 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 think excuse me to 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 tell me that I was successful I would be successful at at arriving in America and establishing a life there so I did not know so the same thing if had I told my parents they would have I'm they would have said definitely not Definitely not, you can't go, because we fear for your life. Uh, so that's why I didn't tell them. But um, my sister kind of suspected. She she suspected that I, and she told me the night before, she said, I, I don't know, Carmen, I have a feeling you're not coming back. So wow. I, I did not confirm with her, but you know, it's like, mm. it was kind of like silence between the two of us, so wow, she kind of, totally- but she didn't say anything.
0: To leave your family Mm -hmm. like that, not be able to say goodbye and all of that, Um, were you able to, when did you um, get reunited with your family, have you been able to travel back, and are any of your family members here in the States?
1: No, my parents both died, so, uh, but my sister is here, but my parents died, my sister's here, yes, so um, uh, my sister has her own story, she escaped too, my brother-in-law escaped too. so uh yeah they're they, they've established but they they think the same way I do right now, and they they look at you know what's going on here and they they kind of wonder um but you know I shared with them you know after you know I learned a lot of Austrian economics after two thousand and eight i mean i i i I got exposed to ron paul 's uh revolution manifesto, and then from that that was the beginning of a enlightening experience for me where I found Mises.org and, uh, you know, Lou Rockwell and all that. And, um, so I, and of course, libertarianism, you know, um, I, I found out about Harry Brown and loved Harry Brown. Um, but, um, you know, little by little, I, I understand, I, I've seen a lot, I've learned a lot of things and I shared with them with my family and they're like, cause they, they were like typical, you know, conservative Republicans, you know, pro-Bush. And, but little by little, they they kind of started to pay attention to what I was saying about, you know, hey, there's something wrong here. This is not traditional conservatism. It's not traditional republicanism. This is something much different than that. So, it is. Yeah. It is
0: something different. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that the paradigm of left and right is something that we're sold a lot nowadays. I think... In reality, it's that spectrum of individualism and collectivism and that in reality there is a right and a left socialism, if you will. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing today is that the conservatives, they actually are defending policies that are based on collectivism like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Federal Reserve, the war on drugs, the endless wars around the world.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I've seen that. I've noticed that. And, um, I was very disappointed to see that, you know, Republicanism has taken such a, such a, such a radical turn. And basically to me, it looks like, you know, the, the today's Republicanism, I don't want to put them down because I know that there's a lot of Republicans, at least people who are actually consider themselves Republicans. Um, and they, but they still, you know, understand a lot of, you know, their pro-freedom, pro-free markets. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that a lot of people lack understanding of how economics play an important role into everything, into social life, into uh, po- politics. Um, and, uh, and that's where I think that libertarians have, a, um, you know, maybe a little more knowledge because, they know a little bit about how free markets work and what the underlying causes of, you know, collapses, market, market um, you know, uh, collapsing are. And they're not really random. They're basically government and Federal Reserve, you know, products of those, you it's know, inflationary right. products. I'm You're sorry? exactly
0: right. It's it's ideas. Ideas have consequences, and to get down to the bedrock of the ideas and the reason why something happens, I think is is important, and that's why these conversations are so great because we do get to see that ideas, when put into practice, have a um, have a predictable outcome. So if you base your ideas on the the premise that individuals have zero rights then you're going to keep taking everything away from them until they have nothing left, that the government's going to take everything and then dole back out to you what they think that you deserve. Now, as far as um, convincing other people go, persuasion, um, what was, do you think, that uh, really turned the tide with your family to go from accepting republicanism or traditional conservatism to more of a libertarian mindset? Was it your just example? Was it just the way you live your life? Or was it because... You presented them with some ideas in, uh, not in a confrontational way, but more in an educational way.
1: Oh, we have debates. Trust me, we've had debates in our family. Debates are very healthy. Right. <laughs> Always, you know, it's it's like we battle ideas, and I think that's really because we live apart. So we live; they live in one side of the country. I live on one side, another side of the country. So really, they—I mean—they know how I live and all that, but. It's mainly the battle of ideas, the ideas that I've shared with them. And then a lot of things that I have actually mentioned earlier, but for which they 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 weren't aware and, and you know, they didn't believe in those at that time. It's like through the course of times, they paid attention and they saw, I mean, look at the debt. Look at all these wars, look at all the economy, look at what's going on, look at the value of our savings. I mean, we've worked all our lives and, you know, the market crashes. I mean, look at all that stuff and, you know, look at, you know, for example, you know, the Federal Reserve, unfortunately, the central bank and how they, nobody can touch them. Nobody can come close Nobody can establish. I mean, everybody has to comply with with that and with with those rules and regulations. So I think that's really what what had had happened, and they they kind of realized that it's not the you know it's not what I they thought it was.
0: I, I would agree with that too because these are not ideas talked about on TV. They're not taught in school. They're not. Um, they're not really uh, brought to the forefront. You really have to go digging for these ideas. I agree that Mises.org, Fee.org, they're amazing sites. They've got thousands and thousands of books on Austrian economics, like you talked about, which is basically the uh, the economic system of individualism. It's uh, it's called Austrian economics because of the people that came up with it were were from Austria. So, uh, but it's basically about uh, it's about the what a free market truly is. It's about individuals voluntarily transacting between each other now what do you think is happening at the moment with pessimism the rise of socialism and what do you think can be done on an individual level for folks who want to live a more free life you talked about the, the book by harry brown how to live free uh in an unfree world i think you've been influenced by that pretty heavily because um, there are practical uh-huh. things that individuals can do even though maybe the national government and all of these big ideas and these big uh, programs seem untouchable
1: Yeah. uh, Well, definitely that book. And I read it several times. And um, uh, a lot of the traps that Harry Brown talks about, they're traps that we actually fall into and uh, they have nothing to do with government. Okay. But there are a lot of other traps that definitely have a lot to do with government. So we have to determine the difference between You know, what is basically granted to us by the government and what has nothing to do with the government. So I'll be short on that. I'll say just something that has nothing to do with the government is the identity trap, meaning, you know, uh, which is, by the way, Harry Brown talks about it and he breaks it down in two parts. First part is um, of the identity trap is that um, the belief that we should be someone other than ourselves. Meaning, we forfeit our freedom when we try to live our lives according to some predetermined notions, ideas of other people that may not necessarily coincide with our goals, desires, or needs, you know. Uh, For example, I have been most of my life, I have been a, you know, naturally, I guess, a people pleaser. And I had a hard time saying no to a lot of people, even though it was not necessarily good for myself. This has nothing to do with the government. And there's a lot of people like that. And maybe more so women are than their men. Okay. But maybe because we were built differently. So, you know, being a people pleaser actually had, had been a little detrimental for me, to me, because I found myself a lot of times unhappy. And after I read that and, and, I'm kind of made identity trap, uh, um, being something very dear to my heart. I started to reflect upon on situations where other people wanted to me to act or do things the way that they don't necessarily made me happy and were, or were, you know, would coincide with what I wanted. So I started to little by little, you know, I still work on progress, but, um, I started to work on saying no. Meaning saying, no, it's very healthy because number one, you're true to yourself and number two, you're true to others. And you and I know that a lot of times truth hurts yes. and it's very, you know, it's not pleasant to, t- to say the truth, especially nowadays. Truth is not something that it's, it's a very predominant, I found out, but you got to be true to yourself and you got to be true to others. And that's how I could live with myself. When I say no to other people, even though I'm feeling very uncomfortable at the time, I have to remind myself why I'm saying no. Okay, so that's one thing. Then I got trapped, too, in remember the feminist movement. I call it the feminist trap. So I got caught into that. That's, you know, a lot of women still think of, of feminism, you know, using masculine traits to... To prove what that we are as good as men and I too had fallen into that trap back a couple of decades ago Even 10 years ago, and it's just the idea that oh wow I'm a female just because I'm a female. It doesn't mean I can't do it. So it took me time to realize that Men and women are so different. Okay, so each you know each gender has their own qualities their own strength their own weaknesses it doesn't mean that I have to use things that are not naturally for me to to prove what, you know. So I I came out of that trap, but I was in a trap and I see a lot of I mean I think the entire feminist movement is in that trap, you know. And even women who don't want to necessarily feel like they are but they kind of go with the flow because status quo and media and propaganda are so powerful. They are in a trap. So this really has nothing to do. You have to think for yourself. You really have to be a critical thinker, you know, observe and reflect upon, you know, your own life. So that's the first part of this trap. The other trap, the the second part of the identity trap, and he talks about where um, we expect others to do things the way that we would do them. Okay. And that has been actually, um, I think maybe all of us to a certain degree more some more some other some less but we want to have a tendency to want to control events we want to control government we want to control other people we wish other people you i know you were in the banking industry right That's in the I mean. mortgage industry mm-hmm. me too <laughs> me too so i was like i did it for decades and i would look at people people's finances and i was like frustrated why aren't people, why are people living from day to day, from paycheck to paycheck? Don't they have the idea that maybe a little bit of savings and investing and it would be good for the future? You know, I, I didn't realize that I couldn't control them. Right. You know, but I, I was frustrated that people were doing what I thought it was the wrong thing. You know, so that was that was another thing that, uh, um, you know, um, the second part, which, you know, it's the belief that if we cling on to the idea that we can change a government or change other people, we're we're actually, you know, denying ourselves from living a, a, a life of happiness and tranquility and going back to that. Harry Brown says there are solutions, alternative solutions to everything. This is part of the government trap we're getting into right now because government does do a lot of things that obviously, you know, harm us. Okay. So we have to find ways, you know, like if you go on my blog, and I've done a lot of research um, on that, and I've actually put like education, you know. we don't need parents don't and grandparents. They don't need to send their kids to public schools. Public schools have an agenda. It's a curriculum that basically is based on you know, teaching kids not how to be independent, critical thinkers, but it teaches kids how to grow up to become uh, obedient, civil, public servants, you know, public servants. That's basically just follow this guideline and you don't think outside the box, okay? So there are alternatives to that. Does it involve some sort of, you know, uh, uh, work? Yeah, I, it does. But it's so worth it. Um, Ron Paul curriculum. It's a great curriculum. You know, up to you know the first few years, you know, it's it's you know it's a little bit difficult, but then it becomes easier and easier because, truthfully you know kids teach themselves and they learn how to teach others so if you have a family with more kids you know the older kid could actually teach the younger kids and all what a parent needs to do basically the parent needs to be a supervisor to make sure that they the the kid is doing what he's supposed to do okay so there all are, there are alternatives out there i mean there's other ones there's like in north carolina Thales Academy, which is founded by a libertarian man who actually, built, you know, founded this on a, the curriculum is in, on Socratic principles, free market, free independent, you know, individual freedom uh, and all that. So it does not really abide by it doesn't uh, endorse or, or, or um uh, engage you know that curriculum it's not public school traditional curriculum so there are other schools as well there are private schools which you know don't don't you know don't uh, adopt those type of the public school curriculum so and I think children to me it, this is where you want to get them when they're really young because that's where you form them if you're a dedicated person It's gonna be so much harder to try, probably even impossible later on in life, to try to change their point of view or the way they think. You have to start really early in life, basically, to teach them how to think for themselves. So I think uh, that's that's education. Uh, Of course, you know, there's um, higher education. Does everybody have to have a diploma, Brad? Does everybody have to have a diploma? I don't have to be successful. I don't have i I agree and and I don't think I mean there's a lot of successful people who have become very successful, and I think they become became successful because they did not go to high university because they were able to be outside of that system and they actually started to think and put things together to make to call their own shots so that's education then you know you have the so there are on my blog. I have Praxis, which is it's a it's a great it's like apprenticeship company. I don't know if have you heard of them? Mm-mm. What's the name? Okay, of the company? there is. I'm sorry. What's the name of the company? Uh, they're Praxis. Praxis. Oh, okay. Praxis. Uh, I think that's their name, Praxis, and I think they're in Charleston, um, uh, South Carolina, and uh, it's a couple of guys who were in. I think they were both at Yale. And uh, they just got bored and they just decided they just would drop out and they established that they founded this company. So what they've done, they're also libertarians, of course. So what they've done, they are putting, and they're still doing, they're putting together young people that get out of high school and matching them up through apprenticeship uh, apprenticeship programs with startup companies, okay? And in the process they teach them, guess what? Free market economics. That's so crazy. they do have, yeah, it's amazing. You know, so young people, they learn a little bit about that. Then they go. But of course, it's not for everybody, you have to be driven. You have to show that you are a go-getter. You have to show that you are a problem solver, that you're willing to do whatever it takes. Because startups, they're trying to, to survive themselves and grow. They're not going to you want know, to hire people that are just lazy over there and thinking, oh, I need that paycheck. I can hardly wait to get that paycheck at every end of the week. So that's not the attitude they're looking for in young people. So it's not for everybody anyway. So health care is another thing, you know, I mean, I mean, we've talked about healthcare care and insurance companies monopolizing the, the entire industry. And of course, that is hard. And I know my experience when my insurance went up like three or four times and I was like, wow, I can't afford this. I really can't. So what I'm trying to say is that We have to, in my opinion, we have to start finding ways to become, through ideas, sharing ideas, to become less dependent on the government. And that's not an easy thing to do. But in order to become free, for freedom to survive, I think at each individual level, if we start little by little thinking that, okay, I can get rid of this you know, of the government on this aspect and we can never be a hundred percent away from the government right. because that's not realistic, mm-hmm. but anything we could do like in the healthcare and I'm going to be short on that one. There are alternatives. I wrote about it and I think primarily in the healthcare arena and you probably will agree with me on that aspect, Brad, we really have to be our own health asset managers. Yes. Because doctors don't have the 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 energy to deal with so many sick patients, um, you know, government doesn't really care about us. Drug companies out there to stay in business, and they're you know they're only you know responding to their shareholders. Okay, insurance companies, you know, they're 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 partially subsidized by the government, and they're large corporations. So we end up having to take care of ourselves. So we have to be our own health asset manager because our health is our number one asset in my asset, in my opinion. And I'll probably end with this because I know we're a little past time even though I could talk now. You got me going. That's no um, problem. I, I, enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy hearing
0: because I, I think one of the knock on libertarians is that we complain all the time and we don't offer solutions. So I'm really glad to talk about solutions because... I had a psychologist on the other day, and he wrote an amazing book, The Non Runner's Marathon Trainer, about psychology and the psychology of success. Is that if you present a picture of the future to somebody, which is better than what they have now, and you don't give them the tools to reach that future, that's a form of psychological torture, because you're 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 setting some people up for failure basically. So I, I enjoy talking about these solutions, especially the healthcare, the idea of being your own healthcare. Asset manager, because like you said, your health is your number one asset.
1: Yeah. And and basically, if you are not, if we are not mentally and physically well, how much freedom do we have? Think about he, people who are mentally or physically disabled. Are these free people? Sadly, no. So I think they, the two of them go hand in hand. So these are things where you know, yeah, the government may tell us, you know, through their charts that we should eat more carbs and we should eat more grains and we shouldn't not eat fat because animal fat is bad and this and that. But I think we should actually do our own research, try things on our own, see what works for us and look not at what, you know, the USDA charts say. Look at other options out there. Okay, look at other alternatives as far as foods, nutrition, um, supplements, how to live your life, and 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 how to how to really pay attention to your own body. And to me, that's very important, that's, and probably to you as well.
0: Yes. Definitely. Uh, pay- yeah, I've I've dealt with uh, you know the healthcare system and being uh, not exactly healthy for a long time. And the idea that others can dictate how much suffering that you have to endure or dictate um, what choices you have to make has always bothered me. Uh, Even before I was sick and so after getting sick and you're inside this healthcare system like you talk about with the insurance companies, then you have the regulatory bodies on top of that and then you have on top of that just the general government. And so you have all these layers of control and when you're sick and not feeling well, you know, you're you feel like you don't have a lot of options, you don't have a lot of choices. So the more that healthier you are, I think the more freedom that definitely that uh, that you can have in life. And personally, what, I do, what I've done is I've opted out of the pain management system. I still have chronic pain. But I use Kratom and CBD oil to manage my chronic pain. Because uh, the, the pain management system is based on the criminal justice system. Just because you're in pain, they treat you like a convicted criminal. So I think that's, that's pretty crazy, definitely. Well, I really appreciate your time, Carmen. I know we went a little bit over, but I could talk about this and we want to have you back on to go in depth about the alternatives. And talk about Harry Brown's book it. and get, get that really out there again, because, you know, unfortunately, Harry passed away, you know, uh, a few years ago. And I think his work is really important about getting free market solutions, solutions at the indi- individual level to increase our freedom uh, where we can. So definitely, well, where, exactly. where, can people, where can people, Carmen, find more of your work, more of your ideas that they can um, dig into solutions instead of just, you know, seeing the problem?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, um, on my on my website, which is solitarygal.com. dot um, I try to keep everything there pretty updated. Um, I I have stopped writing for a while as far as my blog. It Just got. You know, I guess life kind of I, you know, I tried to really live my life and and find more freedom, and do new things. So it was like you know a little bit personal. But I'm gonna go ahead and start you know writing again um, as ideas come. And but as far as what you see on my website, you know everything is pretty much up to date. Like you know finances, education, healthcare. Um, I try to keep that very up to date, and then people could look at options what they have in the education, because I broke it down, you saw education, healthcare, you know, and uh and other alternatives. I wrote, I mean, if people want to see some of my blog posts as far as healthcare, they could go back and, and look last year at some of my blogs as far as health and what I've done. But I'd love to be back and just share with you and your audience again some of the things that I that we weren't able to cover today as far as healthcare And uh, because I think they're very important and a a lot of people are not aware they exist.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the idea, you talked a little bit about psychology as well, and the psychology of freedom is about personal empowerment and making changes in your own life, about um, what you can uh, do to reach your full potential. Because in my opinion, human freedom is really about human flourishing. And that, you know, those people who do support the ideas of individualism really want freedom for everybody. That they want to live in a more peaceful, prosperous world where everybody can benefit, where everybody can pursue their definition of happiness, and to really be left alone by uh, the coercive arm of the government. So I think we we definitely agree on that. So we'd love to have you back on to talk more about education as well, because we had Connor Boyack on a few episodes ago. He's the author of The Tuttle Twins. And so we talked in depth about the—we didn't get as much into The Tuttle Twins— um, but we're going to jump into that next time we talk. But, you know, just talking about these alternatives, I think is important to show people, like you had an opportunity when you were in Romania to travel the world. In a way, we're doing that with the people in our own life that we're exposing them to ideas that maybe they wouldn't run into um, in their day-to-day life. So definitely. So I appreciate your time, Carmen, and I appreciate you Thank being you. there. It was a great conversation, and I look forward to our next one. And everybody out there, you know, if you want to live a more free life, I definitely recommend checking out Carmen's blog and also Harry Brown's book, you know, How to Live Free in an Unfree World, because it was written, I think, back in the 70s, but they updated it. And there's a lot of great information in that. And that freedom does matter and that there are ways that you don't appreciate how free you are until that freedom is being taken away. So I appreciate Carmen's perspective today and letting us know that we should appreciate what we have and fight for more freedom for us all. So, Carmen, thank you very much, and thanks, everybody, for listening today, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.